Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 69 for the week of December 14, 2014. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about turning white fat into brown fat with a pill, believe it or not, and why that might be cool or not cool. We're going to talk about gout. Is it as awesome as you always thought it was? It's not awesome at all, in case you're wondering. And uh, we have with us on the show today... um, friend of the show and lawyer extraordinaire, Aaron Miller, and he's going to talk to us about patent law uh, and its ins and outs and all the craziness that goes along with it, which means I should probably introduce everyone here. So we have uh, most of the normal people here. Dale's has one of them babies again, and he couldn't make it. But we have Carolina Balkenbush. She's our registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada, and owner of the wonderful blog, carolinaskitchen.com. Hello. Hello. We got Christian Copley Salem. He's a graduate student in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay! Yay! And me, Scott Barnett. I am a PhD candidate um, in cell molecular pharmacology as well at the University of Nevada, Reno. And of course, our very special guest, Aaron Miller. He has a uh, very cool and interesting background. He has a BS in plant biology, and he's also a Juris Doctor in patent law, which is a fancy way of saying he's a very very smart lawyer, and we are grateful to have him on today. Hi, Aaron. I'm just very psyched I got invited back. Yay. Um, he was also on episode number 58, the fecal pill episode. Um, if you want to go back and, uh, and now that's get, a some, legacy. get some old-timey goodness uh, from, from Aaron in the show here. So welcome from aboard, Aaron. From poop to patents. From that's... poop to – oh. <laughs> wow. You just named the episode. Yeah, you got, you got a uh, – uh, yeah, a, a – what do you call those? A copy copywriter here. Um, yeah. So, Aaron, how's it been? You are out in New Jersey, if I do recall. Yeah, yeah, I'm in uh, Hoboken. I I can actually see the top of the Empire State Building from where I am, but my uh, my mail says New Jersey on it. So here I am. Ah, oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. A very um, uh, kind of morbid, macabre type question here, but uh, were you able to see the Twin Towers from where you were? Um. So actually. Uh, Back, back when that happened, I was living in New York City, but I just happened to be on vacation that day, uh, so I was in Spain. Uh, although, if you if you walk to the waterfront from here, you can see the new uh, One World Trade Center, uh, which is, I think it's, if not done, it's very close to done. I think people have moved in. It's uh, it's actually, it's, it's pretty nice. It's pretty have you nice. been over there and seen the cascading pools and all that stuff? I haven't seen close up. Uh, last time I was over, it... Uh, you still needed to have some sort of ticket uh, or reservation to go in. You couldn't just walk into it quite like a, a normal a normal part of the city. Although I'm, I'm hoping they will open it up that way soon. It's kind of uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it no longer being sort of this slightly morbid tourist destination, and I'd like it to be more like just part of the city again. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's become like sort of a, a tourist must see, but having to having to get a ticket and wait online and all this stuff, you know, for a local to just go look at a part of the city. It's it just doesn't happen very often. Yeah, uh, and it just doesn't feel right. You're like, I'm a local. I don't I don't wait in lines with you people. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you're there for something else, you want to get your coffee, you know, walk over, look at it for five minutes, say that's nice, and go do what you're gonna do. So Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um but you are by trade a a patent lawyer. Uh I am, yes. Yes. Um which is a, a uh, I think is every bit as a magic box as what we do to the general population as um 
you know, as anything else, it's uh, it's it's a it's a very very complex system here. But it's, it's one of those I don't want to say unfortunate necessities because it everyone would love just people to hold hands and everything to work out. But you need patents to make the world go round. Um, but there's a lot of questions about how it actually works, and and um, and there's a lot of questions about reform and all that sort of stuff. And we'd love to talk to you a little bit about that today. Sure, sure. There's uh, you know, it's it's a lot of. It, it works very differently in uh, different contexts. I guess part of part of the the complication of it is that you sort of have this one universal law that's theoretically applicable to all technologies and all industries, and it's it's a better fit for some than others, probably. Right. Um, yeah, and l- look forward to talking to you about that. But I guess before we get into all that uh, rigmarole, a uh, couple updates. Um, good news is is uh, Christian, you. It just talked about malaria as well you've always just talked about malaria i suppose because <laughs> you're never more than a few minutes from that but i just found an article that says that malaria deaths have been halved since 2000 <laughs> which is pretty insane right like that goes to show you I, if i were to oh, guess yeah. a lot of that's the bill gates thing this has kind of been his 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 you know child to to you know to make this go away so yeah very cool. i mean you're talking about thousands of people a day that die of it so. yeah it's nuts so halves uh, is pretty good yeah halvesies uh, and another thing, so I found a website which has just become my new favorite thing. It's called uh, shitmyreviewersays.tumblr.com. Um, or I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Shitmyreviewersays.tumblr.com. And for those of you who have never submitted a, a paper uh, for for publication, what happens is, is you write your paper, you've done your research, you're very proud of everything, and then you submit it to whatever journal you feel is most applicable for the type of research you did. They assign it. This is the peer review process they talk about, and this is probably one of the most critical aspects of why modern science works is through this peer review process. As flawed as it is, it it actually is useful. You send it to the the journal. They give it to several people to uh, read over, experts within the field uh, that your paper applies. They read it over. They either give it a thumbs up or often they'll say, you know, you really should have run this experiment too or they'll want changes. You go make these changes and then it gets accepted for publication and that's the peer review process. Well, as as part of this process, each reviewer writes comments and recommendations (laughs) which go back to the author. And uh, generally they're very professional uh, often they're very to the point and not terribly nice um, and infuriating, to be honest with you, because it's clear that they didn't read the paper thoroughly or they didn't understand what you were doing. There's all kinds of of, of, of just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Discontent that goes with when you get these these uh, these these reviewers, these, or these, re- these reviews back. And um, these are a few of uh, the ones from, from shipmyreviewerssay.com. So... Uh, these are hilarious. I'll just read a few of them. The best thing about the paper in its current form is that it looks uh, is that it is short, so I don't waste a lot of time reading it. It looks like someone's smart graduate student has been foraging in theory and has managed to learn how to mangle simple concepts together and hide them behind a pretentious but empty prose. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm looking at it right now. I see this. It's insane, right? Um, the that, author's spelling of coordinate, while technically correct, is arcane and annoying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this paper adds nothing to the existing knowledge of the subject. This paper is desperate. Please reject it completely and block the author's email ID so they cannot use it on this online system in the future. Wow. <laughs> um, it is early in the year, but difficult to imagine any paper overtaking this one for lack of imagination, logic, or data. It is beyond redemption. 
<laughs> wow. Another one. Was this an undergraduate class assignment? Oh, uh, my God. Studies undertaken in such a manner are presented here uh, degrade all science by giving the semblance of legitimacy to illegitimate work. And uh, I'll read my last one here, which is uh, which I really take umbrage with. I also, uh, I also do not feel that the PI is qualified to undertake this work, or more accurately, that she should undertake uh, she should undertake this work. She needs to be academically successful first. So this one annoys the heck out of me. It kind of seems funny on the surface, but it's science wants you to the people of science want you to stay inside whatever small box you've created for yourself through the previous research you've done and they really discourage you from branching out and becoming good in other fields when you apply for grants and when you when you turn these papers in they they look at your previous research and they look at the work you've done in the field and if you've done 20 papers in a certain field they want you to do the 21st to push that forward a little bit more but then you stay in this very very narrow channel of science research and if you try to do something and i'm not saying going from like studying mitochondria to studying like you know how neurons develop during you know infancy these are just if you just want to go from like studying mitochondria in fat cells to studying you know mitochondria in neurons there's a good chance they're going to say hey tex get back in your box you study fat neuron or fat mitochondria not neuron mitochondria i find this very annoying about science because people are intelligent and capable of doing more than what they've just been doing but it's uh, discouraged actively discouraged in our field that's actually a major reason that uh, i i at one point had planned to get a phd and go into uh, a career of research uh but when i i worked as a tech in a lab for a while i realized that you have to study this extremely narrow area for years or even decades and uh, I, I thought I would just get bored. Uh, yeah, in, in rightfully so. I mean, there are ways it can be done, but the, the the further you move along in your career, the less likely you're going to be allowed to to make those changes. So it, these big rudder steers, you can't do it anymore. You just can make fine adjustments based on how your research is doing. But you probably made the right call then. That's what this says. So um, we'll, we'll never know. Good times. Yeah, but make your way over to that website. I'll put it in the show notes if you forget the, the title. And uh, and it's constantly updating. I think it's all updating from their Twitter feed. I think it auto-populates this blog. So you can probably follow them on Twitter too. But I'll leave that to you if you want to do that. Uh, two other very, very small things here. Our brains have gotten um, smaller in the past ten to 20,000 years researchers have found. So why would you guys think that your brain... Our brains would be getting smaller over the last 20,000 years. What would your thoughts be? Anyone? Efficiency of energy usage. Okay. I like that one. Anyone else? Just because? Oh, I was going to say efficiency. Oh. <laughs> he took the words out of your mouth. Stolen! Yeah. Uh, well, oh, the, the decline is – oh, were you going to say something? Well, uh, like from a biological perspective, the reason that, that – at least two people wanted to answer that that way is because when you evolve something you tend to you know it takes what it's got and it does something with it so you often find things get over evolved and then pruned back a little bit right so the idea that your brain just all of a sudden got big and then refined itself back down um that's actually a process that happens during development well, you guys have you guys have so. between both those you've hit the nail on the head. We actually don't know why technically, but when they ask these researchers to kind of 
you know, why they thought it was possible that this had happened. They said the decline is possibly related to warmer conditions over the last 10,000 years. Colder conditions favor this kind of this bulkier body, uh, bigger everything, um, because you get this this buffering effect and you can serve heat better. Uh, another likely reason, they said, is that our brains are energetically expensive, as you said, and they will not be maintained at this, these bigger sizes unless it's absolutely necessary because it's so energy intense to have it it's kind of this if you don't use it you lose it sort of thing if you we created we like christian you said we over expanded and it's like well we don't quite need all this so let's trim trim the fat so to speak and we'll we'll have a leaner brain that that still does what it needs to so uh and lastly i've had this on the back burner for like a month and i just want to say it real quick because it's like two seconds so the question was is are mice really as good as human analogs for doing research the national institutes of health and the National Human Genome Research Institute called ENCODE, they did a project, and they actually submitted a series of papers in Nature over the last year, and uh, they examined the genetic and biochemical differences between mice and humans when it relates to research, and they found, actually, in general, that we have a lot in similar, which is great, in terms of like how we do uh, our chromatin, euchromatin, epigenetics, heterochromatin, all these higher-level uh, organization of how the genes are expressed is actually very similar in them. And in fact, we have 70% of our protein encoding gene sequences are identical. The bad news is, and this is kind of the real bad thing, is that mice only share 1.5% of this the genome that is associated with disease states. That 70% is mainly housekeeping stuff. If you look at your genome, if you look at any mammalian genome, as a matter of fact, any eukaryotic genome, you're going to find that almost all the processes are conserved, how you metabolize sugar to make energy and how you form a cell membrane, all the stuff that's encoded into the genome is just conserved across all eukaryotes. And 1.5% sharing 1.5% of the genome with mice with the um, with disease states is not that much. So uh, the reason we do it is because mice are very easy to knock genes and out and to manipulate, and they're not that expensive to maintain, yada, yada, yada. But uh, but that's just the nature of the beast. So keep that in mind if you're doing research with mice, that it probably won't translate that well. And I guarantee you at some point in that reviewer thing, somebody's going to make fun of somebody else for not using mice. Of course. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Why do you use a mouse model? Yeah. Yeah stupid you could spend literally an hour of your talk talking about how mice are completely and totally useless specifically for the thing you're looking at and the first question out of somebody's mouth will be well why didn't you use a mouse right guaranteed <laughs> i've actually had that happen to me where i spent an entire slide talking about how mice don't have preterm labor it's a terrible model and the literally the first thing out of someone's mouth was well, have you thought about in vivo mouse studies? <laughs> nope, didn't think about them at all. No, nope. not not even <laughs> didn't even cross my mind. Yeah, no idea what you're talking about. Well, yeah, for good or bad, mice are going to be around for a long time in research. Um, yeah, they are. So anyway, uh, that's that's all my little updates I wanted to do here. So now, Aaron, I know you've heard the show before, and, and we're about to move into our, our primary segment here, and you do understand what that requires you to do. I, I do. I'm I'm prepared. I can handle this. I love Fight it. The power. Based on that, we have no choice but to move on to. Science blast. Science blast. I was so excited to hear Aaron's. I'm just gonna be like, I'm like, I just want to hear what he does. <laughs> we all are just like, okay, it's your turn. All right, I love you guys, it. Aaron, you guys have been missing for like two years. I finally hit something. I know it was <laughs> it was very Dell-esque in its uh in its in his in its nature. I really enjoyed it. So uh, oh, thank funny. you for that, Aaron. 
All right. Science Blast today. Carolina, you were going to talk a little bit about white fat, brown fat. So what is white fat and brown fat? Can you at least, can you explain that? Yeah, sure. So so going back to episode 61, I talked a little bit about um, brown fat and how it's a better type of fat in your body than white fat because it's more metabolically active. It has the potential to lower triglyceride levels, to improve um, uh, insulin sensitivity, can reduce the severity of type 2 diabetes. Um, but it's it's only found pretty much in infants and in very, very small quantities in adults. But it, it's kind of being looked at as a potential therapy for obesity and metabolic disorders. So what scientists have been trying to do is find a way to increase the amount of brown fat people have. And so the story that Scott and I are talking today actually comes from uh, Harvard University's uh, Stem Cell Institute, where researchers have been looking at a way to turn white fat cells, which are the less metabolically active kind, um, into brown fat. So, Scott, I don't know <laughs> what point you want to take over and help me out with this. Um, I don't want to step on any toes. But basically what these researchers did is, is they found a way, a, a protocol to screen a whole bunch of different types of compounds um, in human adipocyte uh, stem cells. Mm-hmm to see if they would convert from white fat into brown fat. And they screened about a thousand different compounds and they narrowed it down to two compounds that were able to turn the cells from white fat into brown fat. And did you, uh, did you see, it's un- they were a little disappointed. They, were, they went into a collaboration, and this is common in pharmaceutical basic research library, or uh, basic uh, research science labs at, at, in academia, whereas they'll partner with very large pharmaceutical f- firms to kind of, there's a symbiosis that gets formed because you, so in this case they were working with Roche. Roche is a massive, I mean, just insanely giant conglomerate that 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 does pharmaceuticals. Uh, they have a two million compound screening library. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, screening, if this is how a lot of drugs are found, and I always found it a, interesting but a little arcane in that. When you hear about people, oh, did you know that this extract from the guava super plant from Guatemala, you know, it cures cancer or whatever someone's going to try to claim. They send people into the forest. They pay people to go and just collect everything they can. I mean, I'm talking everything. They document it. They know what kind of plant it is. Take pictures. They get they they take extracts of all these things from leaves, from from the seeding part of the plant, from soil samples, from everything possible, and they just they get extracts from these things, and then they just store them. This these big companies amass in this case up to two million different individual uh, groups of compounds, and they have no idea what they can do. They have no idea if they have medicinal properties at all. But what you, you end up doing is you get these screens which is you grow cells that have your disease in it and you grow tens of thousands of small little groups of these cells and you just start applying drugs to them and you see if it has an effect on the cell sometimes it will kill the cell sometimes it won't do any sometimes you'll see an effect that is that regulates whatever disease you're looking at and once you do that then you just you start whittling down these these compound libraries and you start following them to groups oh this one tends to affect the obesity pathway this one tends to affect neurons and you start getting this really detailed group of, of information about how these different extracts are, are, are influenced the cells. And then you go in and these extracts may have 10,000 compounds in it. Then you have to find out what compound it's acting upon. And this is how a lot of modern science is done. So to go back to the story, Harvard was 
collaborating with Roche, uh, and the idea is that Roche says, we'll give you access to our 2 million compounds. Have at them. But anything you find, we own as intellectual property at that point, and now they're going to start doing their drugs. And the idea is that they're using basic research scientists to help further them, but basic research is using them to, to, to further the science as a whole to understand what these do. And, and there's, it kind of goes back and forth uh, about who's benefiting most from it. Um, but anyways, that's what they did. The collaboration ended because Roche decided they didn't want to uh, study this line of metabolism. They didn't find it, prob- well, ultimately their business. So they decided it wasn't going to make them enough money, so they just stopped. And so they were limited to this 1,000 compound library they had instead of the 2 million compound library. But they did find a couple things here. Sorry for the, that was the side note about how how these companies do screening here. But yeah, no, I, I saw that too. So that's pretty unfortunate. It seems like th- that was a few years into the research. Basically, Roche decided to dissolve that that partnership there. Right. Um, so basically, these researchers only had access to about a thousand compounds. And with their screening process, they were able to find two that reliably were turning white fat cells into char- to have characteristics of brown fat cells. Uh, but there were problems with the two um, with the two compounds. The two they narrowed it down to um, were called uh, R406, and this other one is called Tofacinitib. Was how do you say that? T O F A C I T I N I B. They're all impossible to say, but yeah. But it, <laughs> just in what you said there, there's interesting information. Which is, did you notice that one is just a letter followed by numbers, and the other one actually had a name? Yes. It's kind of like you don't name your baby until – in a lot of countries, they don't name their baby until they're like two years old because you're not sure if it's going to survive. That's how these compounds work too. I'm working with a compound called N6022 right now um, because it's not approved for human use yet. So they just get all these chemical names. But the other one you said has a very nice name associated, which means it's being used in humans right now. Yes, and what it's being used for is uh, primarily for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. It's actually FDA approved since 2012. Uh, but has some side effects that actually these researchers were concerned about being potential side effects um, in the conversion of white fat to brown fat, in that it uh, is an inhibitor of the uh, Janus kinase uh, pathway of the the receptor, mm-hmm. and it has it, it has implications for um, immune re- response. It can be immunosuppressive. And so they're concerned that long-term use could lead to uh, increased risk of infections, possibly carcinogenesis. Yeah. And these are warnings and precautions that are that are listed on the boxes for rheumatoid arthritis medications that use the same compound. Yeah, so the JAK, uh, Janus kinase here, it's actually a part of it. It's an intercept. It's a family of intracellular non-receptor tyrosine kinases, if you're into that sort of thing. And uh, what's really interesting about this is, is JAK stands for just another kinase and uh, because when they did these initial pcr screenings to see what what they were finding in their 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 whatever cells they were looking at at the time there were so many variations of this that they call them just another kinase and it actually stuck for a while but being the boring people most scientists are uh someone came to their senses and said well we can't call it just another kinase because it doesn't sound very professional so they switched to janus kinase here but uh i i wish I wish it was just another kindness. I like that even better. Yeah. But, um, but you bring up another interesting point, which is it's really important that they – it's really good and interesting that they found one that's already FDA approved because if they were – even though both these – so both cause these adverse immune responses um, 
However, one has not been tested on humans and it doesn't have a history in humans. And so the fact is, is that if they were to go with this other compound, UCP1, uh, there's like a 0.0001% chance it would ever end up becoming a drug that people would take. So they kind of hit a home run by finding a drug that's already been FDA approved that probably cost a few hundred million dollars, if not a few billion dollars to get to market. So uh, yay for them. Yes, I, yes. I have a question if, if anyone knows. Um, so we're, we're talking about uh, converting existing white fat cells into brown cells as opposed to just uh, spurring the creation of brown cells uh, freshly from someplace. Or do we know? These right, did go did you look at the procedures a little bit more than a I did? Because I, I saw in the description of the article they were talking about using the human stem cells. So, so right. I don't know if they were converting it directly from stem cell into brown fat cell or if it was first becoming a white fat cell and then becoming a brown My fat cell. My understanding is they were actually using adult-derived human stem cells um, because apparently, and this is not my area at all of expertise, but it's common for um, as you create more white blood cells there's actually this whole it uses your body will use adult drive stem cells to create new white blood cells de novo within your system uh and so they want to target the creation of these new white blood cells from adult drive stem cells so they basically want to nip it in the bud before these stem cells create white blood cells they want them to to create brown cells so they kind of want to get at the beginning of the process. Does that make sense, Aaron? Uh, actually, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. Because, uh, I, I, again, I, I don't. I know they're both called fat cells. I don't, I don't know how similar they are morphologically or not. It's just uh, my understanding is that it's quite unusual that you can kind of turn grown-up cells from one type of cell into another. Dang near uh, impossible. Exactly. Right. Um, I don't know. Just curious. Yep. Thanks, guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, did you, did you have anything else on here, Carolina? Um, no, just, just wanted to point out that this is, you know, this is, this is basic science research. It hasn't you know gone to clinical trials or anything. They're just, they, they haven't used any, um, in vivo models. This has all been done in vitro using these cells. What? They didn't use mice? What? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Aaron, to your question, this is a quote from, uh, Dr. Cowan, who is the, um, not the lead author, but the PI for the lab. It says, uh, you constantly replenish your fat blood, your, your fat tissue. So if you were on a medication to convert the cells, each new fat cell would become more metabolically active and would convert to brown over time. So I actually had this backwards. These will oh. slowly metamorphosize these white blood cells during each subsequent division uh, into a brown, uh, brown, brown fat cell, which makes it all the more interesting. Uh, and I honestly don't know how they did that. Uh, this is, uh, we will, we will just have to call it magic for right now. Yeah. And it's interesting when you think about it first, you know, if, if you're thinking about it as a cure for obesity, first you're, first you're saying, you know, you're still full of fat. <laughs> you're still going to have a ton of fat cells. But the nice thing about these brown fat cells is they actually basically melt white fat. Right. So. Right. Kind of cool. Yeah. And and well, and another thing that the article pointed out, which is, it, with any pill you take, this doesn't. So when you decrease the amount of white fat, that's good for type two diabetes and for overall health. But the other thing you normally do when you're decreasing white blood cells is you're exercising, and there's all the added benefits of exercising uh, cardiovascularly and and probably systemically. And so it's this whole magic pill thing that just doesn't exist and may never exist, which is you you may be decreasing your white blood cell count, but 
You could still get heart disease. You keep saying blood cell. You keep saying blood cell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying blood cell every time. Yeah, you hit yeah. well a couple times. Good. You you you've caught me. I, it's a, it was a test. I wanted to see if you guys. Were <laughs> yeah. uh, that was quick. <laughs> I'm like ah. So the, the fact is, is that it does not replace all the benefits you get from having a better diet because even just even, like you know, great, you can take a pill. And you can eat your McDonald's every day. You still have high triglycerides. You still don't get all the benefits of having a healthier diet and having the roughage and all this sort of stuff. So it's good for a small group of people who are morbidly obese and there's nothing they can do uh, to to get that that BMI down. But it's not it's not something that if you want to lose twenty pounds, you're going to take. So, but Scott, what makes you make more fat cells? Food. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so the more you eat, the more fat cells you'll make. And if you're turning them all into brown fat cells. <laughs> oh, oh, you're saying this is like a snake eating its own tail. It will even yeah. it will help even more and more and more. Well, yeah. shoot, I take it back. Everyone, let's let's eat the pill. <laughs> I'm imagining a lot of very sweaty, chubby people. <laughs> yes, yes. Christian, what, what do you have for us today? Okay, so uh, last week... I think it was the week week before last. Um, we were here last week. Were we? Or was that just Scott and I? I don't remember. Whatever. We were here last week. It was two weeks ago. Oh, okay. Time stands still. Moving on. Um, I complained about having a pain in my foot, and um, so the doctor told me that I have gout, which I figured, what the hell, I'll talk about it, and then we could talk a little bit about um, going to the doctor if you have pain, because my parents and my family tend to not do things like that. And everybody ends up dying. It's a bad thing. So, um, the first thing is that gout is just the buildup of uric acid in your joint. And there's, there's a whole lot of different things that you eat that have um, what's called purines in them. And purines are, if anyone's familiar with molecular biology, um, the A and the G in DNA, the adenine and the guanine are made from purines, or they are purines. Um, caffeine is a purine. There's a lot of different purines, and your body has to deal with them when you eat them, and one of the things that it does is it converts them into uric acid. And um, uric acid can is basically floating around in your body all the time, and Carolina sent me this really interesting article that talked about the fact that there is a there is a mutation in higher primates, and this isn't just like in humans. This is um, apes and chimpanzees and orangutans. Um, they have a nonsense codon that's inserted into the gene that prevents you from converting uric acid into another chemical called allotonin. So, in most mammals. Um, they can clear uric acid from their system using this enzyme, but in higher primates, humans and apes and whatever, we can't do that. So it literally has to either be excreted from your body or it just sits there. And we actually have, in everybody walking around, a pretty high level of uric acid compared to other mammals because we can't get rid of it. Um, in some people, and there is a... There's a lot of evidence there's a genetic component to this. Um, some people, it gets so high that it starts to precipitate actually out of your, your bodily fluids and 
it does so based on a high acid um, environment. And you have a high acid environment, believe it or not, in your joints. So you get a lot of uric acid buildup in your joint. And it's basically like accumulating crystals in a place where everything should be soft and squishy. So it's in um, your blood at a certain level. It's doing fine in your blood based on your blood's pH. But when it finds its way to a joint, it precipitates out because of the pH change. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Um, and, you know, I knew exactly what the concentration they recommend you don't go above is. And now I can't remember. I believe it's five. I think it's five um, milligram percent. But. I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. It's five-something. Um, almost everything they talk about in medicine is milligram percent, which is milligrams per deciliter, which is, which is a, useless a, to researchers. It's totally, totally terrible. I hate that. But anyways, um, so what happens is you get too much of this, and it builds up, and then it forms these crystals, and they are relatively um, resistant to being eaten by macrophages and being gotten rid of. So they just sit there and they build up and eventually, because there is an inflammatory response, they swell up and they hurt. And it's funny because this is a, a good window into what it's like to go to work for us. I went into lab meeting and I made a flip comment to um, our, our head boss, Dr. Buxton, that I had was diagnosed with gout. And the first thing out of his mouth was, well, if you consider the literature from the 1700s, <laughs> you don't hear that out of somebody's mouth. And then for him to delineate exactly what it was about the literature from the 1700s that would be interesting to me, um, how many people here on this podcast could just do that? Oh, hey, I have this. Oh, hey, let me tell you about the 1700s. It's incredible. He yeah. knows literally everything there is to know about. He's very smart. Yeah, it's crazy. But um, what, what a lot of people have done, and there's a lot of this um, evidence for dietary changes making a difference. And so I talked to a couple of nutritionists, one of them being Carolina, and the other one being the one that the doctor sent me to. And they both said similar things um, about diet. And, of course, that's, you know, what nutritionists focus on. The, interestingly, the article that Carolina sent me says that there's a lot of evidence that there is a, a specific genetic dietary interaction component. In other words, it's cool to change your diet, and that may or may not help, um, but if you have certain genetic predispositions, it's going to help more. Like It's going to be a more significant factor in your uric acid level than if you were not to have these genetic markers. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So I'm, I'm basically in the position where I'm probably going to, at the advice of um, people that I talk to, start taking a drug that inhibits the enzyme that produces uric acid, which is really the, the – there's a couple of drugs that they have, but the, um, the allopurine, allopurinol – um, which, by the way, Dr. Buxton just pulled that completely out of thin air. He's like, oh, yeah, you should take allopurinol. I'm like, okay, good that you know that. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. But, um, and so what happens is when you eat meat, specifically sardines, red meat, um, 
a few other foods. There's a lot of weird foods that have um, high purine content in them. But when you eat foods that are high in purines, your body sends them through this enzyme and converts them into uric acid. And so the dietary recommendation is to avoid these foods. But um, if you have a huge problem, like a flare-up, which I guess I would technically be qualified in that group, um, just changing your diet isn't going to completely eliminate the problem. The problem is that you have a really high uric acid content in your blood. So you end up taking, you end up probably taking this enzyme blocker, um, xanthine oxidase inhibitor, and it will stop your body from being able to produce uric acid. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And it's interesting. The funny, the best part about this for me is that uh, the, there's a single mutation in this gene that has killed the primate's ability to get rid of this stuff. So even chimps, or I should say monkeys and stuff, don't have this problem as much as the great apes do. And we happen to be the great apes, so yeah. we have to suck it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's my little boo-hoo story. Um, I'm you didn't mention alcohol, though. Yeah, you know, so, okay. Oh, boo. Ostrich head in sand. <laughs> no, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Um, it's only really beer that has any data behind it showing that it's bad. Um, I, from all the literature that I read, which included the recommendations for the rheumatoid arthritis foundation thing, um, the article that Carolina sent me, and a few other things, there really is some solid evidence that beer is bad. Um, it's higher in purines than other, other stuff. But there isn't a lot of evidence that just alcohol by itself, in a moderate way, is overly problematic. And that being said, once again, the diet thing is only super effective if you have a specific set of genetic predispositions. It is helpful but not necessarily going to change the world. I mean, I've been a boozer for a long time. <laughs> Recently, like when, when my mother died, my brother and I just sat out in the backyard and drank every night, um, almost into oblivion, and I didn't have any problems. So, it, and that was beer. So it isn't necessarily that, oh, I had a beer, I'm going to have a problem. It's more of a... a a lifestyle type thing and my diet has been pretty good so I'm going to end up on this um, I talked to the I had to keep a journal of all the stuff that I ate for the nutritionist and that I went to talk to and she was like I don't even see how you could change this to make it better I'm like thanks oh, <laughs> brag. But it will it no it's because I do the vegetarian thing a little bit and oh. that's really kind of what they tell you to do right um, yeah so it, it my problems probably not going to turn out to be diet related so I'm going to end up on this drug, which is oh, fine, oh. whatever. Life goes on, and then yeah. you die. So yeah. good times. Yeah. Well, what I thought was yep. funny is that my mom is not like a science person at all. And I mentioned briefly to her that I was looking this issue up for you. And uh -huh. she's like, well, everybody knows that gout is caused by eating fatty food and drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, mom. <laughs> she's always like that with every topic I bring to the podcast. She's like, well, everybody knows that. <laughs> You're like, no, mom. Everyone does not. No, they don't. Yeah. I, I've always, I've always thought of gout as a disease of uh, medieval lords and knights who, you know, they <laughs> eat red meat and they drink beer. And uh, 
their oh, feet hurt. I never yeah. thought of it that way. It's interesting. Yeah, and uh, you're and it, it probably it's probably more prevalent in you know in a group of people that was overeating in a lot of purines and had no way to you know fix that. But right, I, I, our, even our modern diet, you know, there's there's a lot of crap that people eat. So. I understand that back back in olden times, I'm thinking like medieval Europe. Uh, if if you had the money to eat meat constantly, you typically did. Uh, and if you were poor, you ate a lot more grain. Uh, so you know, I, I don't think they put it together at the time, but I think uh, back in medieval times, gout uh, I believe was much more common uh, in the nobility and the, the people of means. Oh yeah, Man, I they have... really got the short on the stick. They got hemophilia from having sex with their sisters, and they got gout from eating too good. <laughs> oh my God, it's true. I know. Um, and I, I always, fun fact, I always think, so urea is what we create and we excrete from all the extra nitrogen we get from our, our food sources, but uric acid is very similar to urea and that's the main component of bird pee slash poop. See, which I, I, I was not going to go there. But I was. No. You have bird pee in your veins is what I'm trying to say. You, you, and of course we should clarify that birds don't pee. No, it's this. They, they, their crap is is their everything pee. together. Right. Yeah, they, that's so. That's why bird poop is so awfully smelly. Is that it's got all this weird Ur- stuff in it? Uric acid in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uric acid. Good times. I'm very excited now. Uh, we have our, the treat we had mentioned at the beginning of the show. We made you all wait for, but uh, Aaron Miller is going to talk to us about uh, a little bit about patents and and how they how they work. Um, uh, Aaron, uh, the the floor is yours. Sure. Thanks, guys. Uh, so I, I thought I'd start with just sort of a, a very small intro, and then I'd focus a little bit on uh, gene and living organism patents, uh, which you know I, I think are some of the more interesting ones, and I thought the audience of this show might be more into. Uh, so you know, it's 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 a huge topic, uh, and if there's any legal type people out there, this absolutely is not meant to be a universal explanation of patents. More like just a, a fun explanation for people with more of an interest in biology. Um, so starting off, the patents, uh, patents are in the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution says, the Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing, for limited times, to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Abraham Lincoln had a patent. It was a device to lift boats over obstructions in a river. He is the only U.S. president to have had a patent. Huh. Uh, Mark Twain was also an inventor. He received a total of three patents. They were on uh, some very, very random things. I think one of them might have been a brassiere. It was, it was odd. And Albert Einstein actually was a patent examiner, I, I think, in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he actually might have been working as a patent examiner when he did some of his early physics work, when he was not a full-time physicist yet. I believe that's uh, right. So that's our, yeah, that's our so fun, uh, fun trivia for you. So what is a, what is a patent? Uh, a patent is not a right to do anything. A patent is the right to exclude other people from doing things for a fixed amount of time. Generally, that means uh, manufacturing, importing, and selling things in the United States. Uh, any any country with a modern economy will have its own patent system, uh, but you will need to get a patent in each different separate country to get your rights there. Uh, a company with a lot of money and a lot of means might be getting patents for something all over the world. Someone who's smaller might only do the U.S. or only do the U.S. in one or two other places. It depends what your business is and how much money you feel like spending. Uh, you can have overlapping patents on the same thing. The, the example I like to give is that if person A invents a car and they get a patent on the car, 
and person B invite invents the windshield wiper for the car, and they get a patent on just the windshield wiper. Person A can build cars, but they can't build it with a windshield wiper without person B's permission. Person B can't build a car at all because person A has the patents on the car. They only have the patents on the improvement for the car, uh, the windshield wiper, if that makes sense. Right. So ex extremely briefly, uh, what, a, what a patent is, is uh, whether an inventor or a scientist or whatever they are, they, they write a long document or in, in, in practice their patent attorney does a lot of it for them. It discloses everything they've come up with, uh, how it works, why they think it's special, maybe some background. Uh, they should provide at least one example, preferably a bunch of examples. And then in a separate part at the end, it's something called the claims. And the claims are describing the stuff that you think is actually new and that you think that you're entitled to uh, monopoly on. And then you send that into the patent office. It sits around for maybe two years. And a patent examiner looks at it, uh, looks at your claims, looks at what else existed in the world, and they say, uh, usually they say no the first time. And then you change your claims, and you go back and forth, and you argue. And roughly half the time, at the end of the day, you'll come out with some kind of patent. And it will usually be much narrower than what you asked for the first time. Uh, so but how that's, do people that's... get like patents for time machines, which exist, right? Uh, they don't, no. So there's um, perpetual motion machines are one of the, uh, the example they, they like to give. Uh, usually when you send in a patent, as long as it, it sounds plausible and you provide a reasonable number of details, there's a presumption that what you did actually exists and works. They, they trust you. Uh, they, they kind of have to because there just aren't the resources to send people out to look at every single patent application in the world. Uh, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of issued patents and, you know, probably at least twice that many patent applications. And, you know, it's a government agency with only so many employees. So they largely just trust you. Okay. Uh, there are certain exceptions like time machines and perpetual motion machines uh, where there's basically just a presumption that it doesn't work and they'll make you prove it, which, of course, you can never do. Uh, but usually, usually they, they tend to trust you as long as you provide sufficient detail. Okay. Uh, somebody down the road might come and challenge you to say that, no, you couldn't really do that. Or, you know, you, you only know how to do A, B, and C, but your claims are for A, B, C, and D. Uh, so that's, that's often a battle that's left, left for later if it comes up at all. Okay. Okay. Um, so what, what can you patent? The, the patent statute, which was, uh, it's not in the constitution. It's written by Congress. Uh, it's a, a law passed by Congress. It says that you can patent quote, a new and useful process machine, manufacture, or composition of matter, or any new and useful improvement thereof. Uh, it's very vague. It's usually construed pretty broadly. Uh, it sounds reasonable on its own, but like with so many things in life, the, the devil is in the details. And uh, deciding, deciding whether something that someone has come up with uh, counts as a machine or manufacturer uh, or something within the statute is occasionally falls into a gray area. Uh, what you can't patent are laws of nature and abstract ideas. You're supposed to patent inventions and not discoveries. Ooh, that, uh, example, I love that wording because it, that's going to, I'm sure that will come out here in a minute about everything else, but I, I'm excited because you said Oh, we're building. Things. Okay. We're building. Good, good, good. <laughs> is, is, is there tension in the room yet? There is. <laughs> um, sure. So I guess in, examples of discoveries are if you just find a plant in the jungle and no one's seen the plant before and you bring it home, 
and it's the most wonderful, uh, impressive, and useful plant in the world, you still can't patent it because it's a discovery. It's not an invention. Uh, another example is a mineral that you just found in the ground. It could be the best, most useful mineral in the world, but if the mineral was just sitting there on the ground and you're the first person to find it, you're not supposed to be able to patent that. Uh, it's a sensible rule, but it's a little bit vague. Uh, now, genes and living creatures are not specifically addressed in the patent statute or, as you'd imagine, in the Constitution. They didn't really know about genes back then. Um, there was a presumption for a long time that you could not patent living things with a certain limited exception for uh, a special thing called a plant patent, which I won't get into. It's, it was more for agriculture. It's, it's not what people are referring to now when they talk about patents on plants. Uh, there was a case which came, uh, it made its way to the Supreme Court in 1980 called Diamond v. Chakrabarty, though, where they hammered out this problem. The, the background is there was a genetic engineer, I believe that was Mr. Chakrabarty, he was working for General Electric, and he developed a bacteria which was capable of breaking down crude oil and which was engineered with, uh, I believe, two plasmids with genes which coded for a hydrocarbon degradation pathway. So this was an extremely early form of genetic engineering, and this, this bacteria did not exist in the real world. He took uh, an existing type of bacteria, and he coaxed plasmids with this useful thing into it, and he filed a patent for that. He was originally rejected just because the thing was alive, but they, they appealed it, and it made its way up to the Supreme Court, and by a very narrow five-to-four split, the court said that you could patent a new genetically engineered organism as long as that organism didn't exist in nature. And because this organism with the plasmids for uh, eating hydrocarbons, I think the idea was for cleaning up oil spills, didn't exist in nature. So they said, even though it's alive, it still counts as, quote, an invention and not a discovery. Hmm. And so is this the beginning of gene patents as we know it then with this one case? Um, it's It's... It does, but it's broader than that. It, what it did was uh, it pushed aside sort of a presumption that things that are alive are not normally patentable at all. Uh, at this point, nobody was trying to patent genes. It was only uh, the Supreme Court case was 1980. I believe the invention was made in the early 70s. So law, law lags years and years and years and years behind science. Right. Uh, one of the cases we'll get to later that was uh, you know, decided a couple of years ago that you know, the science was 15 years old by the time it got to the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, thing, thing A, just because something's alive doesn't mean you can't patent it. That's, that was, that's not really question now either. Uh, <clears throat> now remember I said earlier that you, you can't patent a discovery. You can't patent a new, a new mineral in the ground. You can't patent, uh, a new plant you find in the jungle. There was a case that came up in 1911. It's called Park Davis versus H.K. Mulford and Company. It was decided by Judge Learned Hand. That was actually his name, Learned Hand. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, so the patent was for concentrated adrenaline. It was purified by a novel method from an adrenal gland, I think in some kind of animal. It was a pure form which didn't exist in nature. It was useful. It was new. Uh, but it was a purification of something that was out there before but wasn't really useful before. And they decided that this purified adrenaline was patentable. Even though the adrenaline molecules uh, were in nature, they were sort of tied up you know, inside a, an adrenal gland. It wasn't useful, and it didn't, it didn't exist in this form. And that led to something they called the isolation and purification doctrine, 
this one will be coming back to us. The, now, was the, the idea patent, that though, is, is the patent for the adrenaline itself or the process to purify it? So the one I'm looking at, uh, it was concentrated adrenaline. Uh-huh. Uh, apparently, concentrated adrenaline wasn't available as a human product before. Okay. They, you know, they had adrenal glands, and somebody had figured out that adrenaline comes from an adrenal gland. Right. Uh, apparently, the method that they used to purify it was new. Uh, I actually am not sure off the top of my head whether they also patented the method for extracting it. Uh, that's actually an excellent question, and people will often go for both the method and the thing. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to have to say I don't know. Okay. Um, and then in the 1950s, there was another patent for isolated vitamin B12, which was held valid. It was extracted from a liver, but similar to the adrenaline patents, they just didn't have uh, the concentrated in-hand version of this before. They just they knew it existed, but they, they didn't have it in a useful form. And under this isolation and purification doctrine, uh, getting this product in an isolated and purified form was considered patentable. And this is what leads us into gene patenting, actually. There uh, are lots of uh, gene patents that were issued for many years. They were issued basically uh, under this isolation and purification doctrine. So uh, these genes did exist in human organisms. They exist in you and me. Uh, Where they did not exist was actually pulled out of an organism and typically put into a reproducible plasmid in a way that scientists could manipulate and hold and sequence. Right. So... Uh, they were they were for many years issuing patents just on genes and segments of DNA exactly as they exist in nature, just pulled out of the organism and typically popped into a plasmid in some sort of reproducible form. Okay. Um, and the the logic behind that was that that's like pulling adrenaline out of the adrenal gland. It existed, but. Nobody really had their hands on it. You couldn't really do anything with it. They're concentrating and the genes, so to speak. It, exactly. It's it's the idea that it didn't it didn't exist in isolation before, even if it did exist in a broader sense, and that was considered good enough for a very long time. And I I read somewhere this morning that something like twenty five hundred patents uh, were issued uh, over the years to uh, that included claims for just isolated genes as they existed in nature. It's just, you know, as they exist in you and me or bacteria or whatever it might be. Uh, this all changed. There was uh, so I guess the, the, the background to this is uh, there's a company called Myriad. They owned patents on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 breast cancer genes. I think that might have actually been done with the university, but they were the exclusive licensees, and they basically owned the patents on BRCA1 and BRCA2. The very broadest claims in their patent were for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes in any form outside of the human body. Any use, any context, just basically if you if you pulled the gene out of a person and did anyone with it, these patents covered that. It's, it's extremely broad. Yeah, BRCA is for uh, breast cancer. Ex- exactly, right. and uh, it's pretty well known. Uh, these, these genes, mutations in these genes, mean your women's chances of getting uh, breast cancer and I think maybe cervical cancer too. Uterine cancer, one of those. But let's just say breast cancer. It's it goes from very low to very high. So by testing for this gene, you can tell whether you have you know, sort of a normal baseline risk of getting breast cancer, or an extremely high inherited chance of getting breast cancer. I think uh, I think this might be what Angelina Jolie was tested for. That's exactly correct. That's why she had the bilateral radical mastectomy to uh, to try to limit the possibility. I think both her mother and her 
grandmother died of cervical and breast cancer because of the the the, the BRCA mutation. Yeah, uh, exactly. So what what I was what I was looking at this morning, they claimed that if you had certain mutations, your chances of getting breast cancer during your lifetime were more than fifty percent. It's it's extremely extremely uh, effective diagnostic tool predicting breast cancer in women. Uh, so this company Myriad, who owned these patents, they were also monopolizing testing for the BRCA gene. And according to what I read, they earned over $2 billion based on this monopoly on the testing for the BRCA gene. They also were extremely aggressive in enforcing their patents, even in some cases against nonprofit companies, and threatening other people who were offering BRCA testing without a license, uh, without permission from them, and typically paying royalties from them. And I believe they were even threatening people who were doing research to find better and different testing methods for the Burka gene. Right. So they, you know, they 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 definitely did a lot to make themselves an unsympathetic character. Uh, they're they're a little bit sort of your your extreme nightmare patents are bad scenario. Uh, so they, they are they, they working made... under the philosophy beyond just profit that if you don't defend your patent, you may lose it. So just sue everyone. Um, they, they wanted to maintain their monopoly. You can, you can charge one, you can charge more when you have a monopoly and two, uh, you get to make all the sales. So, you know, it was extremely profitable. Um, the, the, under the philosophy and the, the, uh, economic logic behind patents is, uh, to incentivize investment and, uh, to allow people to develop technology. And, you know, they, they sort of, recited the the typical justifications, which uh, I, th I think in many cases are actually true. Uh, but because this was, you know, testing women uh, to find out whether they're going to get cancer, and because they were extremely aggressive in enforcing it, they, they made a lot of enemies. So uh, eventually, this uh, group, they were called the Association for Molecular Pathology. They included the ACLU, some scientists who signed on to the case. Uh, I don't know exactly who else, but uh, a lot of people wanted to go after this patent. And uh, <clears throat> really, although the, the what they were actually challenging was just this one patent, in principle, a lot of them wanted to knock out uh, biotechnology patents kind of across the board, pretty much any any patent involving genes uh, for a combination of, you know, ph philosophical uh, and more practical reasons. Uh, I think I think they were going too far, but in, in, in to some extent, I think uh, they they were right. So anyway, the they they challenged this patent, and the the lowest court that heard it, it was a district court in New York. Uh, he struck down some of the claims in this patent, including the claims that were to just the isolated genes themselves. And uh, it was a big hubbub, and it was all in the popular press, and it was distorted. It was appealed up to the intermediate court, which is uh, called the Federal Circuit, which does all the patents appeals, and uh, they overturned uh, most of the rejections. So they they reinstated uh, all or almost all of the claims, and then it got appealed up to the Supreme Court. It was a very high-profile case, and uh, millions of people were weighing in, both academics and medical people, and biotechnology people in universities. And it was uh, in in this field, it was an extremely important, closely watched case. The Supreme Court, by a nine-to-nothing vote in 2012, struck down the broadest of Myriad's patent claims, which were to just the isolated cDNA product on its own. So basically, the claims that were to any 
any any use or any any possession of Burka one and Burka two basically outside of a human body, those were knocked down. What they left in place were broader patents where there was more manipulation. In particular, a cDNA claim. Uh, cDNA, a lot of you probably know, it's using uh, I believe messenger RNA mm -hmm. uh, to create a uh, DNA segment that contains only the coding regions of a gene. Uh, exactly. It removes regulatory segments, it removes uh, so-called junk segments that may or may not do anything. But there, there is no cDNA out in the real world, and the Supreme Court reasoned that because the cDNA protein doesn't exist in the real world, it only existed because someone at a lab bench put it together. See, this, this is where scientists a... call BS, though. Like, well, go, please, exactly. I'll let you finish your point. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, anyway, so this, this is, uh, they, 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 just, they decided that that was potentially different enough so they they didn't strike down those ones the the quote uh from justice thomas although he was writing for a nine to nothing court uh he said that cdna does not present the same obstacles to patentability as naturally occurring isolated dna segments its creation results in an exons only molecule which is not naturally occurring its order of uh its order of the exons may be dictated by nature the lab technician unquestionably creates something new when introns are removed from a DNA sequence to make cDNA. And this seems to leave intact a lot of gene patents and only knock down the ones where it's purely the thing as it exists in nature. Uh, I, I will add, and this is getting towards what we were talking about, that although all of the justices agreed, uh, Justice Scalia write a concurring opinion where he said he agreed with the decision, but he just didn't understand the science. Which is understandable and it's actually nice he would admit that um but the thing is is that cdna is if i write a book and i write all the words and it gets edited and it's ready to be published and i i i, I own the rights to that book and then someone makes a trans translates it into klingon or spanish or whatever that's all cdna is it, it's the same words they're just written in a different language and so it's saying like oh no 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 you own the English version of that book you spent 100 years writing. I own the Spanish version because I got to it first. That's all CDNA is. It's, it, that's what blows my mind about this is that I don't feel like that aspect is that complex. CDNA is man-made, but it is a direct trans, translation from, from, from English to Spanish. That's all that, that, that difference is. So that's why I think a lot of scientists were not happy with that aspect of it. And I've, I was under the impression that if you made, quote-unquote, something using a process that was already common, like PCR, right. that you couldn't patent that because anyone could have done it. Um, uh, you're, you're, is that you're incorrect? Right. You're, you're, you're leading into a very good next point. This, so this okay. case was just about uh, patentable subject matter. Is, is this thing theoretically, broadly, uh, eligible for a patent. Uh, other requirements for getting a patent is that something is uh, new and then sufficiently new. It's a concept called obviousness. If it's uh, only an extremely simple variation on what went before, that's not considered inventive enough to get a patent. And time will tell whether these cDNA patents uh, start getting knocked down based on obviousness. Even if they're theoretically subject matter uh, that could be patented, you know, I guess to, to give you a good example, uh, you know, a hammer with a bow tied on it, you know, just a hammer, you know, a hammer is patentable. It's a tool. It's uh, it's a very useful item and it's very concrete. Uh, however, tying a bow tying a bow on it was obvious. 
It's not inventive. So you lose based on obviousness. And just to make sure I understand the ruling right, you're saying that they they said, no, you can't patent a gene, but yes, you can patent cDNA because you created that from whole cloth, so to speak. You didn't, it's not something that existed in nature, therefore you can patent it. Is that, is that the correct interpretation? Exactly. But people also shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take this to mean that anytime somebody creates cDNA, it becomes patentable. Uh, this was purely a case about whether you can ever, ever patent these things. So what they what they really said is that you can never ever patent just the gene itself uh, pulled out of nature and stuck in a plasmid without doing anything else. Which is a good they, first step because that's where we were. Right. Um, again, there's a, you know, I guess in, I'm trying to avoid too much arcane uh, legal stuff. There's a lot of a lot of commentators who believe that these these patents should have been invalid. Excuse me. Not not because they were uh, not patentable subject matter but because they were obvious and it was unnecessary to get into the sort of philosophical question about, you know, is, is this something that we should, we should ever be able to patent uh, at a fundamental level? They should have just been knocking these things down because uh, you didn't do anything. It was there. Uh, maybe in the 1980s, it was impressive to find a gene and pull it out and be able to clone it and use it. But you know, by this, by this late period, uh, it's no longer so impressive. But that's that's not a matter of uh, patentable subject matter. That's a matter um, that's an issue of novelty and obviousness. Uh, although I, it is worth mentioning that I believe the the patent at issue in Myriad, I think that was filed maybe in 1993 or 94, something like that. So when you're when you're making patentability determinations, you're really supposed to be making it from the point of view of the time the discovery was made and the time the patent application was filed, depending on the context. So. A lot of the time, by the time this thing is in court, it's been 10, 15 years since the work was done, and it's now become old hat. Right. So you have to sort of play this this mental, you're supposed to play this mental game and put yourself, put yourself in the imaginary place of a person doing work uh, back at the time they were actually doing the work. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't take this to mean that cDNA will always be patentable. All it means is that the, the raw DNA will never be patentable on its own. cDNA could, in some situations, be patentable. Um, and also, you know, genetically engineered organisms can, in theory, be patentable. Whether they're uh, obvious or not is a separate question. Uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to uh, revoke patentability of genetically engineered organisms and things like that, which I think is going vastly, vastly too far, because like, uh, like the bacteria that was engineered to digest oil, this really is an invention. It's, it was cobbled together by people. It's useful. It's it's a thing that wasn't there before. Uh, you're not just you're not just you know translating English to Spanish like you said. Right. Uh, and then there's a world of gray gray middle grounds, and uh, it will it will really be years before we know the full implication of this. When the Supreme Court makes a decision, the popular press actually a, another good example of you you always complain about how the popular press misrepresents uh, science news they often also misrepresent supreme court news they'll right. they'll they'll describe the decision as much broader than it really is often you're just deciding a very narrow point uh <clears throat> they they declined to knock down cdna categorically it doesn't mean it won't be knocked down uh, in other ways and other times so basically they've they've moved the ball and now it will take it'll take years of lower courts and individual patent examiners uh, reviewing patent applications to see how much this is really going to change people's ability to patent uh, DNA and 
probably more importantly, inventions made using DNA as a piece of the puzzle. So someone in a pretty unique position that you are in, which is you are a lawyer with a with a, uh, a science background, what straddling the law versus knowing of what you know of the science, do you think that legally it's a good foothold? I mean, I know the Supreme Court's weighed in, but do you think the CDNA aspect has a strong legal foothold? Do you think that it's going to be hard to challenge uh, CDNA claims in the future? Or should they, like, just as a scientist? I mean, if if it was me from this is you know half half lawyer half scientist, I would I would probably if I were being threatened with a CDNA patent, I would try to go after it from an obviousness standpoint. I'd try to say like you know okay, so this technically didn't exist before, but these techniques are extremely well known now. So just uh, pulling pulling this out of nature and then turning it into CDNA uh, is obvious at this point. And perhaps perhaps in 1994. When Myriad did this, it was a much less routine step. Uh, if they'd done it in the 80s, it was certainly a much less routine step. But as as time moves on, uh, what's obviousness or not will probably what's obvious or not will probably change. And I, I think it really should change uh, in the minds of patent examiners and judges who are making these decisions. So you bring if, up a really cool point, which is because the obviousness is based on the time in which the patent was put forward. So someone's trying to put together a fresh patent claim for cdna today as you were saying that that could probably pretty reasonably be convinced that it falls underneath that obviousness because any undergraduate could be taught to make cdna in a day so it's a pretty obvious thing at this point whereas maybe the cdna from the late 80s that could stick how long does a patent last i'm uh so in the in the old days it was 17 years from when the patent issues uh, for more recent patents uh, filed in more recent years, it's 20 years from when you file it. Uh, but that's that's a lot of time. And uh, one of the one of the issues with uh, the patent system having uh, a one size fits all set of rules for all technologies is that in different technologies, the the number of patents generated and the the life cycle of the products is drastically different. Uh, at one extreme, you'll have uh, more like electrical technology, phones. Uh, at electronics and computers and things like that, where it will be very common for a single product to have a very large number of patents layered on top of it. At the same time, the the technology moves very quickly. So uh, when something first comes out or when it's first invented to when it goes on the market to when it becomes obsolete is actually very quick. Right. And at the opposite end of that is biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, where let's say you hypothetically found a new protein or a new gene or a new uh, chemical compound to use as a pharmaceutical from when somebody first gets the idea to use it or first discovers it, it will be years and years and years and years and years before you can ever actually give this to a patient. So you, you actually need the longer patent term because it's very likely that in the first 10 years, you will not make a penny. Uh, as a practical matter, you'll probably spend a lot of money to get through all the research, to get through clinical trials, to get through regulatory hurdles and, and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And yes, exactly. So it's uh, a lot of people would say that actually the, the one size all approach to all technologies is kind of a problem. The, because in, you know, let's let's say for cell phone technology, you, you don't need 20 years to make a return if you make an invention that's useful for a cell phone. Uh, you might need 20 years to make your money back for something that's in biotechnology because it just costs four billion dollars to bring to market. Exactly, exactly. And I'd say so. There's 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 a lot of times people find patents disruptive and they cause all kinds of problems. But 
what I think of as the 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 textbook argument for why you do need patents, at least in some industries, is that if if you do a tremendous, tremendous amount of research, let's say you've come up with a protein to use as a therapeutic, and you did research in a lab for all these years, and then you had to go on to find someone to do the clinical trial, run the clinical trials, get through regulatory approval and all this stuff, and it takes you 10 or 15 years to get a product to market. If Merck can just come along and knock off your product in day one, uh, you could be buried. You could never get a penny back. Um, as a practical matter, you often, uh, if, a, if a small entity or a university or a nonprofit makes a potentially useful discovery, the patent is the only tangible thing they own because uh, a small startup company or an academic lab or a university, they don't have the money, they don't have the structure, they don't have marketing teams, they, they don't have the resources to take it through and create a product. So they, they need a way to monetize their technology without being able to take this thing from the lab bench to the doctor's office over 10, 10 years. Right. So it's, it's, it's not unusual for you know, a, a, small, a small biotech company or a, a bio startup to really have almost no resources other than other than a patent portfolio. Yep. Uh, in in yeah, that's an, that's well, the whole patent portfolio. Yeah, it's not only critical for <clears throat> companies, but it's also a point of contention too. That's uh, probably another. Well, I should, I, I'm I'm going more into these non-practicing entities, but the uh, that's a discussion for another time. Uh, I I hate them. I. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, it's good to hear that they're, they're evil. Yes. I've. I've I've been I've been at the receiving end of those and it's awful. Yeah, I bet. Well, um, we we we've we've had a very awesome conversation here. Is there anything else I didn't want to cut you off? We we were running a bit long here, but uh, but uh, is there anything else you you wanted to say before we close out here? Oh, I think that's more than enough for most people in the audience. Okay, well, it was perfect, <laughs> man. It was a very very interesting topic and. Not only has this become the the longest episode of Beta Sandwich Science podcast, but it's also one of my favorites because I love uh, I love hearing this from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Because we always we are, just just like most people when they talk science and they they get it wrong and they talk in broad terms, we do the same thing when we talk about the legal aspects, which is we we just we don't understand the legalness of it, so we 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 get it wrong most of the time. So it's really good to hear it from from someone who knows what they're doing. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on, Aaron. Oh, uh, you're you're quite welcome, and that was the short version. <laughs> right, that was the primer. <laughs> that was that was that was uh, the first uh, the first twenty minutes of your first class. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, the there are always interesting uh, biotechnological aspects coming up in 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 the courts, and so we would uh, at some point we'll absolutely love to have you on to maybe discuss a particular uh, case that that is boggling our minds when whenever that happens to be. Awesome. Good times. I look forward to it. All right. Well, uh, shoot. Um, thank you so much, Aaron, and everyone else for for your stories. We are going to be off for the next two weeks. Uh, I'm not going to be around, and uh, but I think I'm going to try to put together a best of show at least, uh, so we don't have two whole weeks off. Uh, we have a lot of new listeners in the second half of this year, so there's a good chance they didn't go back and listen to the earlier shows. So we'll do a best of, and. Other than that, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you at the new year. So, thanks everyone for for listening to this week's show. Please follow us on Twitter. We are at Beta Sandwich. We put up some interesting links to uh, stories we find during the week, other than just uh, the to link to the to the show. And 
and to follow us on Facebook place thingy. Oh my god. <laughs> we're we're a beta sandwich podcast on uh on Facebook. So thanks everyone uh for listening and we'll we'll see awesome. you in a couple weeks. Awesome. Carolina? Oh yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, uh yeah, bye. There's so people. many people. <laughs> <laughs> bye everybody. All right, take care. Bye.